0: Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, my name's Eric, and I'll be reading you selections from the e-edition of Today's Cape Cod Times. Today's date is Thursday, August 3rd of 2023. We'll start with the weather as we always do when we're reading the Cape Cod Times. Today, across the Cape and Islands, you can expect some sun and it to be breezy in the afternoon. High of 78 expected today. Low of uh, 68 tonight in the overnight. It'll be cloudy. Tomorrow, expect some wet weather. Breezy and humid with showers and thunderstorms. High of 80, low of 68. On Saturday... More of the humidity arrives, with sun and some clouds, not necessarily wet, but pretty uncomfortable, humidity-wise. High of 80, low of 65. On Sunday, we're looking for some sun. Yes, on Sunday, it will be quite pleasant. High of 81, low of 65. And Monday looks to be much the same, with some more humidity coming in, to times of sun and clouds. High of 81, low of 72. Today, the sun rose at 5.37 a.m. It will set at 7.57 p.m. Today, we'll have 14 hours and 20 minutes of daylight. Moonrise will be at 9.33 p.m., and it will set at 7.39 a.m. Now, moving to the front of the paper, where the lottery results and, of course, the news are kept, and we read the lottery results because somebody asked for them. If there's something that you would like read to the blind or those who are print disabled, you can email us at info at audiblelocalledger.org or call us at 508-539-2030 and we'll consider reading it. And if you miss any of the information that we share in our readings, you can always go to audiblelocalledger.org and in the upper right corner is the Archive Readings tab. If you click on that, you'll find a week's worth of our newspaper readings to catch up on you'll find a wide variety of periodicals and literature to enjoy, and you'll find shopping guides, which can help you with savings, which we air on Saturday and Sunday at 12 in the afternoon. Today's lottery results come from MassLottery.com because the Cape Cod Times goes to press too early to be able to give you the latest results. So, for the numbers game, of Wednesday august second in the midday drawing, the numbers were nine, six, zero five. Yesterday's numbers game midday drawing again nine six zero five. The evening drawing, last night's numbers game for Wednesday, august second, four, two, two, seven. Again, last night's number game results four two two seven. Powerball for Wednesday, August 2nd, 23, 24, 33, 51, and 64, with 5, the bonus number. Our mass cash numbers for Wednesday, August 2nd, 17, 18, 28, 30, and 32. Megabucks Doubler for Wednesday, August 2nd, 2, 3, 20, 23, 39, and 43, with 7, the ST Doubler. And finally, Lucky for Life rounds out our lottery results for Wednesday, August 2nd of 2023. 4, 15, 31, 39, and 46, with 14, the bonus number. That concludes the lottery results. Good luck to all who play. Remember us if you win. Now, from the cover of today's Cape Cod Times, we always read the local news first. So, the local story is, Hot Plates, Holes in the Wall, and now, Eviction. Questionable Housing for Residents and Veterans at Sandwich Motel Housing, by Rachel Devaney, in Sandwich. John LaSanta, a U.S. Air Force veteran who lives in a one-room apartment at Liberty Lodge, finds it so difficult to move in and out of his narrow doorway in his wheelchair that he rarely leaves. I'd love to get outside with some of the others. I think to myself, I'd die for that, said Losanto, who had his leg amputated in June of 2021 due to an illness. But I don't go anywhere. It's like my heart was taken out. Losanto pays $1,500 a month, to live in one of the 18 units at the former Country Acres Motel at 187 Route 6A. The rent includes utilities. He's one of a handful of residents at the 8.17-acre property, who spoke to the Times recently about the former motel's declining conditions and the treatment of residents, who are mostly veterans. Carol Eklund, Property manager at the motel has been providing housing for veterans at the motel since property owner Mustafa Akawi bought the property, Eklund said. Akawi bought the property for $973,050 on April 30th, of 2021, according to town records. Hare Real Estate Trust was the previous owner and ran the property is the motel, according to the town. Akawi owns Hanush Jewelers in Falmouth and Hyannis, according to state records and bought the motel as a limited liability company at Eklund's request, she said. At the time of the motel's purchase, Eklund said her vision was to create veterans' housing. "'We weren't looking to make money,' Eklund said in a phone interview. "'We just wanted to help the veterans.' On Sunday, Eklund hand-delivered letters to residents informing them they'll need to vacate their units by September 1st. The property's to be used only as a motel at this time, and no stay can exceed thirty days.' We are very sorry for this turn of events, reads a portion of the letter which was provided to the Times by Liberty Lodge resident Megan Puglio. So will veterans need to leave their units within 30 days? Brendan Breedis, the town building commissioner, said he met with Eklund on June 8th to discuss ongoing concerns and complaints the town received about Liberty Lodge. During that conversation, Breedis said he told Eklund the continuing use of the motel for non-transient residents violates the state building code and town protective zoning bylaws. Eklund told the Times she was confused about the zoning rules for transitional housing, which is why she never applied to change its use. I was wrong, and that was my mistake, said Eklund. To comply with town regulations, the complex must install a fire protection sprinkler system, according to Breedis. Estimating the cost at about $200,000, Eklund said she can't afford it. A Cowie, she said has already invested roughly $300,000 into the property. I don't know where these people are going to go, and I feel bad for them because many of them need it badly, she said, of housing in general. But I'm 70 years old. I have my own problems at this point. Akawi didn't return requests from the Times for comment. A Times reporter called his cell phone, texted, and called both places of business on the Cape. Brita said Eklund hasn't informed the town that she's shuttering Liberty Lodge. If that's her intent, he said he'll work with local veterans organizations to rehouse each Liberty Lodge resident. We're not going to create a homeless situation for all of these people, he said. It's against everything we stand for as a town and as human beings. Was Liberty Lodge supposed to be a nonprofit? Asks the bold subheading. Pulio's mother who didn't wish to be named, is a gold star wife and has lived in a small cottage on the property since April of 2021. Puglio's immediate families also lived on the property for portions of time and currently pays $2,400 to occupy two one-room units. Initially, said Puglio, she thought Liberty Lodge would be established as a nonprofit. A month ago, she found out that it's a for-profit corporation. She's been misrepresenting Liberty Lodge as a veteran's charity, and she's been accepting monetary donations, said Pulio. Eckland denies accepting monetary donations, but Pulio forwarded messages to the Times that show Eckland referring to two monetary donations, one for $50, another for $75. In addition, Pulio said, Eckland never informed residents that the property is zoned as a motel. Ethically and morally, this has caused great harm because. These veterans think they can stay here forever, said Puglio. A rotting hole in the floor. Howard Goldman, a U.S. Navy veteran, pays $1,200 for a one-room, 300-square-foot apartment. As he spoke to the Times, he pointed to uncovered light switches and makeshift wood patches that cover a series of holes across the unit's back wall. From outside his unit, it's it's possible to see through some of the patches into his apartment. Goldman called Eklund a slumlord, said the property is slowly falling apart. Liberty Lodge is a facade, said Goldman. She, meaning Eklund, goes into the community and acts like this is a great thing for veterans. But if anyone donates their time or money, it goes into making open units more rentable, not to benefit the people that live here already. Instead of fixing things, Pulio said Eklund often takes shortcuts— in one particular unit, there was water damage to a floor, which left a rotting hole. She told me to cover it, meaning the hole, with a bed, said Pulio, Eckland eventually hired a handyman to fix it, but didn't pull a permit, Pulio said, and after Pulio went to Breedis with pictures of the hole, he informed Eklund that the commercial permit would cost $500. Since the work had already begun, the town charged double, Eklund said. From what I saw, it's a repair. It's not construction, she said. But when he said I had to pull the permit, I said okay. Buying a hot plate rather than waiting for a stove. Bill Frizzell, a U.S. Air Force veteran, moved to Liberty Lodge on December 1st of 2021, along with Willie Williams, a former member of the U.S. Coast Guard. I wanted to wait to move in until the stoves were working, Frizell said. But... Eklund told a Veterans Affairs advocate for Frizel that if we didn't take the units, she was going to give them to someone else, said Frizel. Frizell bought a hot plate to cook on instead. Soon after, Housing Assistance Corporation based in Hyannis gave Frizzell with a hove with a house gave Frizell a housing voucher, he said. But when it conducted an inspection, Frizell's voucher was suspended because the stove didn't work. Frizzell and Williams asked Eklund when the stoves would be fixed. Eckland, at the time said Eversource hadn't yet finished electrical work that would supply power to the stoves. A couple of weeks later, I asked again, and she said, they'll be on when they're on, and that's the end of it, said Frizell, She was very nasty about it, said Williams. It was a nightmare. Frizell and Williams went to town hall and asked for all the permits and inspections for the property since Eklund took over. No electricians had pulled permits, said Frizell. And that started the firestorm, he said. The pair also went to the Cape and Islands Veterans Outreach Center, a Veterans Affairs office, and Housing Assistance Corporation, he said. We notified everybody, and a lot of people turned a blind eye. A Times reporter was unable to confirm an electrical permit was pulled with the town. Frizel said he stopped paying rent because of the non-working stove and because of a lack of communication with Eklund about costs associated with the unit. He was served with two 30-day notices to quit, the latest in March. When the electrical issues were worked out and Housing Assistance Corporation gave his unit an inspection in March, Frizzell's voucher was approved and his back rent was resolved, he said. Williams was also served an eviction notice on his birthday, he said. He moved April 1st and now lives in Centerville. Cash only at Liberty Lodge. When Goldman first arrived at Liberty Lodge, he was told that rent could only be paid in cash, and when he asked for rental receipts, he said Eklund refused. If I need to move, I have no proof I ever lived here. I had the hardest time getting a bank account because I couldn't prove residency, he said. During a snowstorm in 2022, Williams went to the bank for cash to pay his rent. When he arrived home, his car became stuck in the snow because the motel's driveway hadn't been plowed. He said Eklund knocked on his door at ten that night and told him to move the car. When Williams tried to explain that his car was stuck, he said Eklund became verbally abusive and aggressive. She constantly threatens our housing. We're homeless, old, vets who just want to be at peace, he said. Los Santos also had trouble gaining access to cash and said his daughter goes to the bank and brings cash to Eklund. It just adds another layer of difficulty for me, he said. Eklund admits she only accepts cash. Most of the residents, she said, have a hard time paying rent. My phone is full of excuses starting two or three days before the first until the 21st of every month, she said. If we took checks, they'd be bouncing all over creation. Lodge resident dies, but room remained in disarray. One of the most egregious turn of events, Frizzell said, was when his next-door neighbor died on June 11th in his unit. Shortly after his death, his family collected some of his belongings, but the room remained in a state of disarray. Food rotted on the countertops and clothes, and household items remained in heaps. Blood was also present on the sheets and comforters, he said. Ecklin, though, said it was traumatic for her to enter the room following the tenant's death. Her son, Chris, she said, died in a similar fashion in April of 2021. I still can't go in there, she said through tears, and they know that. I've told them that. The room was cleaned Thursday, after the Times visited the property. All of the complaints are unwarranted, said Eklund. If the residents are unhappy, she said, they can leave at any time. If they don't want the help, that's okay. Unfortunately, there are people in here that do, she said, and that's who's getting hurt. At times, Liberty Lodge was a lifeline, said Goldman, but as the abuse and what he called Eklund's desperation has increased, veteran housing and safety have become compromised. At the beginning, I think she had an intention to help us, said Goldman, but my worst fears are coming true. We're all going to be homeless. She's going to get away with setting us up for failure. Markey and Moran meet with leaders of the Mashpee Tribe by Rachel Dunning. That's our next headline. It's based in Massachusetts. As Vernon Buddy Pocknett, U.S. Senator Edward Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts, and State Senator Susan Moran, a Democrat from Falmouth, looked across Punkhorn Point in Ockway Bay, Pocknett said the federal government, the state, Cape Cod towns, and tribal leadership need to collaborate to clean area waters. Markey and Moran spent Tuesday afternoon with tribal leadership to address federal funding requests made by the tribe, according to Markey. The meeting helped Markey understand how the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, an Inflation Reduction Act funding to the tribe, has been used in the last two years. You used to be able to come here and get all the flounder you want, dig a couple holes and get a couple of steamers. You can't do that anymore, said Pocnet. Sagamore for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. The nitrogen's killing all the fish. It's doing a lot of damage here. Brian Whedon, chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribal Council, was pleased that both lawmakers set aside time to learn how federal and state government impacts the tribe. Senator Markey pointed out during our visit that progress is realized when vision and funding are aligned, said Whedon. We share that vision and will work hard to, sell, to help secure the funding to realize a better future for Cape Cod and our tribal nation. Could collaborations from town to town help clean Cape waters? During the visit, Pocknett expressed his frustration with leadership in towns like Barnstable and Falmouth, who he said haven't moved to help with the buildup of nitrogen in areas that connect to Mashpee. The town of Barnstable in particular owns land that connects to Ockway Bay. Moran said there needs to be a multidimensional approach to fix septic systems that are close to the water. Otherwise, we're just sort of shoveling against the tide, she said. We want to be a lot more helpful, said Marky. Mother Bear, Marky, and Moran talk King Philip's War and Wampanoag history. Marky and Moran also spent time with Anita Mother Bear Peters, a clan mother for the tribe. She took them on a tour of traditional winter wetu, which was built in 2013, and the Mashpee Wampanoag Indian Museum. As Markey made his way around the property, he listened intently to Peters, who spoke about colonization, including aspects of history like King Philip's War and tribal leadership that's evolved over 10,000 years. Peters also spoke about the 69 Wampanoag tribes that existed when the Pilgrims landed. Each tribe had their own chief and medicine man at the time. For the whole nation, there was a supreme sachem, and all the tribes would have a say on who that leader would be, she said. Moran asked Peters how the tribe works to educate tribal youth on culture and tribal history. Peters said when she was growing up in Mashpee, only tribal members lived throughout the area. You were steeped in it, in that culture. You lived it every day, she said. And nowadays we've branched out, but you got to keep your kids in the circle. The trio also viewed an 1877 map of Mashpee, and Peters spoke of the tribe's loss of land. She referred to a 1790 deed which allotted 60 acres to all tribal members over age 21. If tribal members were married, both husband and wife individually received 60 acres, she said. You could trade it with other tribal members, but you could never sell it to an outsider, she said. In 1869, the state asked tribal members if they wanted to become an incorporated town. We voted no, she said, and they made us one anyway. Marky shared his first time visiting his family's home in Ireland. He said he could feel the energy of his ancestors and felt at home when his first cousin offered him tea and cake. In Malden, when I was a boy, my mother would send me out to the A&P to get vanilla cake and tea. I thought it, the tradition of tea and cake, came from the A&P in Malden, he said, but it actually came from that stone house in the farm in Ireland. For Marky, it was powerful to see the federal funding in action, just being here. Talking to tribal leaders helped me to be better educated in terms of what additional resources are needed, he said. Pocknet said his time spent with the senators was a good conversation, but I want to see results. If more people realize what's happening to the water, maybe we can get some things done. Moving from the local into the regional, legislature budget includes extra $58 million for expanded regional transit by Walker-Armstrong for the Cape Cod Times. In finalizing the fiscal 2024 state budget Monday, the legislature included $150 million for funding for regional transit authorities across the state, including the Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority. State Senator Susan Moran, a Democrat from Falmouth who filed the bill to include the money, said the aim is to make public transit more accessible. This is a very exciting area for the legislature to put a lot of money into, said Moran, who used to work alongside the Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority on the agency's advisory board before her time in the Senate. The measure also sets aside an additional $58 million for regional transit funding that'll be used for expanded access, climate-friendly initiatives, such as electrification, and weekend services. The House voted to approve the budget early on Monday, which then sent it to the Senate. Approval from both chambers sent the budget to Governor Maura Healey's office, who's expected to sign it within 10 days. The Regional Transit Authority's budget for fiscal 2023 is $17.02 million, compared to $23.49 million in 2022. According to a report issued in October of 22, the Transit Authority is on solid financial footing and the decrease in the budget was due to the elimination of a program it no longer qualified for. Tom Cahier, General Administrator for the Transit Authority, said he hadn't read the state budget at the time the Times sought comment. As of Wednesday, the Transit Authority still hasn't responded for further requests for comment. Suzanne Grout Thomas, the director in Wellfleet for Community Services and a member of the Transit Authority's advisory board for the town of Wellfleet, said increasing access to public transportation is crucial for those with disabilities and without access to reliable transportation. The money is needed, Thomas said. There's a lot of people on Cape Cod. They need a lot of stuff. Sometimes just getting them the basics is hard to do. Thomas said public transportation, especially for people on the Outer Cape, is a challenge, even though she said the Transit Authority does the best it can, given its current funding. If you're on the Outer Cape and you don't have a vehicle and you need to go to Hyannis to see the doctor, well, that's a challenge, she said. Moving to the Cape and Islands section, where it's guaranteed to be a local article, public comment sought on electric cable proposal by Graham Crowinghouse of the Cape Cod Times. A proposed electrical cable that would run under the seabed from Woods Hole to Oak Bluffs is undergoing the permit application process, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers wants public input on the proposal. Drilling on either side of Vineyard Sound would be required to bury 6.27 miles of cable beneath the ocean floor. Eversource representatives said Tuesday that the proposal was part of a larger, long-term plan to respond to growing electricity demand on Martha's Vineyard. According to the Martha's Vineyard Commission, the population on the island grew almost 25% between 2010 and 2020. As part of our everyday commitment to delivering safe and reliable electric service to our customers on Martha's Vineyard, and meeting the growing demand for electricity on the island, we've proposed building an additional fifth submarine cable, Chris McKinnon, a spokesperson for Eversource wrote. This multi-year project will allow us to reduce carbon emissions by decommissioning and removing the five diesel backup generators on Martha's Vineyard, while ensuring we can reliably meet the needs of our customers on island for years to come. To begin with, Eversource needs a permit from the New England District of the Army Corps of Engineers, who have put the plan in a public comment period. They seek comment from the public as well as any local, state, or federal agencies, and any Native American tribes. The comments can be submitted by emailing Christine M. Jasek at usace.army.mil, and that comment period ends August twenty-fifth. That email again spelled out is Christine. dot M. dot J a c e k at U-S-A-C-E dot A-R-M-Y dot M-I-L. Initial reviews done by the district engineer found that adverse effects to essential fish habitats would not be substantial, and that no historic properties or endangered species would be harmed, according to its report. The majority of the distance across Vineyard Sound would be covered by trenchless jet plow, which would bury the cable 6 to 10 feet below the seabed. On either end, the cable would enter the ground via horizontal directional drilling, according to the district engineer's report. According to McKinnon, Eversource expects the cable to be in service by June of 2025, barring any major changes in the permitting process. The line would have a voltage of 23 kilovolts and would supplement other existing lines crossing the Sound, including a cable from Woods Hole to Tisbury that it plans to replace after it failed in 2021. That cable should be in service shortly after the new one, McKinnon said. Just around 15 miles south of the vineyard, meanwhile, work continues on tunneling for the groundbreaking Vineyard Wind project an offshore wind farm that would generate the power for more than 400,000 homes and businesses in the state. The project includes a 35-mile tunnel to carry power from the wind farm to a substation in Centerville from which it'll be sent out to the power grid. Moving into the national news, we've completed all of the local news, and it's a little early to move to the obituaries. Jury recommends death for synagogue gunmen by Peter Smith in Pittsburgh. The gunman who stormed a synagogue in the heart of Pittsburgh's Jewish community and killed 11 worshipers will be sentenced to death for perpetrating the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. Robert Bowers spewed hatred of Jews and espoused white supremacist beliefs online before methodically planning and carrying out the 2018 massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue where members of three congregations had gathered for Sabbath worship and study. Bowers, a truck driver from suburban Baldwin, also wounded two worshipers and five responding police officers. The same federal jury that convicted the 50-year-old Bowers on 63 criminal counts recommended Wednesday that he be put to death for an attack whose impacts continue to reverberate nearly five years later. A judge will formally impose the sentence later. The verdict came after a lengthy trial in which jurors heard in chilling detail how Bowers reloaded at least twice, stepped over the bloodied bodies of his victims to look for more people to shoot, and surrendered only when he ran out of ammunition. In the sentencing phase, grieving family members told the jury about the lives that Bowers took, a 97-year-old woman, and intellectually disabled brothers among them, and the unrelenting pain of their loss— Survivors testified about their own lasting pain, both physical and emotional. Through it all, Bowers showed little reaction to the proceeding that would decide his fate, typically looking down at papers or screens at the defense table. He even told a psychiatrist that he thought the trial was helping to spread his anti-Semitic message. It was the first federal death sentence imposed during the presidency of Joe Biden, whose 2020 campaign included a pledge to end capital punishment. Biden's Justice Department has placed a moratorium on federal executions and has declined to authorize the death penalty in hundreds of new cases where it could apply. But federal prosecutors said death was the appropriate punishment for Bowers, citing the vulnerability of his mainly elderly victims and his hate-based targeting of a religious community. Most victims' families said Bowers should die for his crimes. Bowers' lawyers presented evidence of a horrific childhood marked by trauma and neglect. They also claimed Bowers had severe untreated mental illness. The prosecution denied mental illness had anything to do with it, saying Bowers knew exactly what he was doing when he violated the sanctity of a house of worship by opening fire on terrified congregants with an AR-15 rifle and other weapons, shooting everyone he could find. Bowers blasted his way into Tree of Life on October 27, 2018, and killed members of the Dor Hadash, New Light, and Tree of Life congregations, which shared the synagogue building. Killed were Joyce Feinberg, 75, Richard Gottfried, 65, Rose Malinger, 97, Dr. Jerry Rabinowitz, 66, brothers David Rosenthal, 54, and Cecil Rosenthal, 59, Bernice Simon, 84, and her husband Sylvan Simon, 86, Dan Stein, 71, Melvin Wax, 87, and Irving Younger, 69. And with that sad story, we will move into our obituaries and death notices that are listed in today's Cape Cod Times. Today's date is Thursday, August 3rd of 2023, and our first obituary is of Margaret McRae of Orleans, known as Peggy to all her family and friends, who passed on July 30th. Peggy was born December 27th, 1937, in Hyannis. She graduated from Orleans High School and went to Cape Cod Secretarial School in Hyannis. Upon graduation, Peggy worked as a secretary at Snow's Hardware in Orleans, and she then went on to work at Cape Cod Sea Camps in Brewster for many years. She retired from Stop and Shop Market in Orleans and was an active member of Brewster Baptist Church and the Council on Aging in Orleans. She loved the beach, she lived on Lunell Landing in Brewster, and Peggy loved to spend time with her family trying out new restaurants with friends. Services will be held at Brewster Baptist Church, August 7th, at 10 a.m. In lieu of flowers, the family requests donations be made to the American Cancer Society. The next obituary in the Cape Cod Times, dated August 3rd, is of Joshua A. Nickerson, Jr. Joshua Atkins Nickerson, a local businessman, community leader, and longtime resident of Cape Cod, passed peacefully after a short illness on the 11th of July, 2023, at the age of 88. He was born in Boston on April 18, 1935. The family will hold a memorial to celebrate life at the Church of the Holy Spirit, 204 Monument Road in Orleans, on August 4th from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. That's tomorrow. The program will commence at 5 p.m. The family kindly requests that, in lieu of flowers, make a donation to the Nickerson Family Association, the Chatham Historical Society, or the Kelly Foundation. The next obituary is of Charles Henry Downey Sr. of Canton, who passed on July 29th at the age of 96. He was a 63-year resident of the town and an only child born in Boston in 1926. He was an accomplished student He attended Boston Latin School, where he was at the top of the class, and he later graduated from Boston High School of Commerce. Due to difficult family circumstances, he was compelled to work during his time in high school, as he was the sole financial supporter for his widowed mother, Mary. At 16, he attended school during the day and would then drive to Hingham's Bethlehem Steel Shipyard for the 4 to 12 a.m. shift, where he was a ship fitter and lead welder. In spite of his young age, he quickly rose to a shift supervisory position, and at 18, he joined the Navy and served for the duration of World War II. Thank you, Mr. Downey, for your service. He served as an aviation metalsmith in Norman, Oklahoma, and was also stationed at Norfolk, Virginia Naval Base. He liked to say that the Japanese heard he was coming, and surrounded, and surrendered. Pardon me. After his discharge from the Navy, he began a distinguished career with Buckley and Scott, Wet and Oil Company, Inc., in the heating oil business, where he was an exceptional salesman. Throughout his career, he was active in oil industry matters. He served on legislative committees for the Massachusetts Oil Heat Council, the New England Fuel Institute, and the Heating Fuels Committee of the Petroleum Marketers Association of America, the PMAA. He was called to testify before Congress on important oil industry matters. In 1996, he was inducted into the inaugural class by NEFI as a legend of oil heat. Charlie had a lifelong passion for the Boston Red Sox. He attended the 1946 World Series, and he also loved any sport his sons or grandchildren were involved in. Visiting hours are in the Pouchard Family Funeral Home at 210 Sherman Street in Canton on Sunday, August 6th from 3 to 6 p.m. That's this Sunday. Relatives and friends are respectfully invited to attend. The funeral services will be, provided, will be private. If desired, donations may be made in his memory to the J. and Louise Kaufman Professor Chair in Vascular Medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine. The next obituary is of Brianna L. Gardner of Mashpee, who, at the age of thirty, passed on July thirty-first in Mashpee. Brianna was a beacon of light and laughter in the lives of those who knew her. Visiting hours will be held Monday, August seventh, from four p.m. in the Buma Sargent Funeral Home, forty-two Congress Street in Milford. The next obituary. In the Cape Cod Times, dated Thursday, August 3rd, is of John Jack Lavin, Jr., of Methuen, who at the age of 74 passed on July 31st. He was a longtime employee at the Bracken Company and McDevitt Trucks. He was renowned for his generosity with his family and friends and had a wonderful sense of humor. He loved the countless family gatherings. He was an avid Sox, Celtics, Pats, and Bruins fan, he loved being on Cape Cod, and he enjoyed lobstering off on the Merrimack River on the weekends, and his card games. A visitation will be held this Saturday, August 5th, from 8.30 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. at Beal and Ames, at 260 Main Street in West Harwich. A funeral mass will be held Saturday, August 5th, at 10 a.m. at Holy Trinity Church Two Forty Six Main Street in West Harwich, and burial will follow at Island Pond Cemetery in Harwich. The next obituary is of Joan Ann Fairbanks Herrick Callie, of Sarasota, who passed on July twenty-ninth. Born January fourth, nineteen forty, in Princeton, New Jersey. Joan attended kindergarten and first grade at Stony Brook School, followed by a few years in Springfield Mass at Tapley School, while she and her family cared for her paternal grandmother. In 1962, she met her future husband, Jerry Colley, on a triple date in Miami, and they were married in Princeton, New Jersey, June 20th of 1964, early in Jerry's U.S. Air Force career. Her mother was a nurse and modeled compassionate care as a four-year-old Joan accompanied her on home health visits in their community. She interned while in high school at Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis, and during Jerry's year in Vietnam, she worked as an ER nurse in both Princeton and Hyannis. She was an RN in various other healthcare settings and closed her professional life at Carl Clinic in Danville, Illinois, retiring in 2002. In addition to Jerry, her husband of 59 years, Joan leaves many family and friends who will miss her dearly. A memorial service will be held August 5th at 11 a.m. at St. John's United Methodist Church in Sarasota. In lieu of flowers, gifts in memory of Joan may be made to Tidewell Foundation 3550 Tamiami Trail in Sarasota, Florida. Our final obituary in today's Cape Cod Times dated... Thursday, August 3rd, is of Daniel John Kelly of West Barnstable, who at the age of 50 passed away August 1st. Danny was youngest of five children, and looked forward to his visits from his nieces and his nephews. He leaves many loving aunts, uncles, and cousins. Danny was a true dog whisperer. He had an unending love for all dogs, and would offer to nanny or house all family dogs. Danny looked forward to watching all sports, especially the Bruins, the Celtics, and the Red Sox, in any PGA tournament. One of his true passions was keeping track of three businesses. Pina Sanitation would receive daily calls and updates on staffing, jobs, etc., along with USA Demolition and Spanky's Clam Shack. We'll take it from here, Dan. You can rest easy. Visitation will be held tomorrow, Friday, August 4th, from 5 to 8 p.m. at Our Lady of Victory Church, located at 230 South Main Street in Centerville. The funeral mass will be held on Saturday, August 5th, this Saturday, at 11 a.m. at Our Lady of Victory, with burial to follow at Mosswood Cemetery in Ketuit. In lieu of flowers, any donations can be made to the Chris Heron Project, Kidney Foundation, or the Boxer Rescue. And that concludes the Obituaries, memorials, and death notices listed in the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, August 3rd of 2023. We've completed all the local news, so we will move into the national world, national and world news. Trump indictment alleges fraud and deceit by Mary Claire Jelonic, Brian Slodisco, and Meg Kennard of the Associated Press in Washington. The federal indictment of Donald Trump Tuesday marks the first time the former president's been formally held accountable for his efforts to overturn his 2020 election defeat. And it adds new details to what was already known about his actions and those of his key allies in the weeks leading up to the violent January 6th of 2021 insurrection. The newest charges, Trump's third criminal indictment this year, include conspiracy to defraud the United States government and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, the congressional certification of President Joe Biden's victory. It describes how Trump repeatedly told supporters and others that he had won the election, despite knowing that was false, and how he tried to persuade state officials, his own vice president, and finally Congress to overturn the legitimate results. Due to the dishonesty, fraud, and deceit by Trump and some of his closest allies, the indictment says, his supporters violently attacked the Capitol and halted the proceeding. In the attack, his supporters beat and injured police officers and broke through windows and doors, sending lawmakers running for their lives. Some takeaways from Tuesday's indictment. Trump knew. As Trump schemed to overturn the 2020 election, many of his aides and allies were under no illusion that Trump, a longtime provocateur, had actually won. Some aides directly refuted conspiracy theories stirred by Trump and his lawyer, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Others told him point blank he had lost. There's no world, there is no option, in which you do not leave the White House on January 20th an unnamed deputy white house counsel told trump according to the indictment another wrote in an email i'll obviously hustle to help on all fronts but it's tough to own any of this when it's all just a uh, conspiracy s word so it's a obscenity i cannot say over the air it's all just conspiracy stuff beamed down from the mothership But Trump continued to tell prolific lies, the indictment says, about the outcome of the election, even after being warned of his false statements by top government officials, citing thousands of dead voters in Georgia, an overcount in Pennsylvania, and tens of thousands of non-citizen voters in Arizona. Those theories had been disputed by state and federal officials and even his own staff. Those claims were false. The defendant knew they were false, the indictment states. At the same time, Trump privately acknowledged his loss. After the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff urged Trump to not take action on a national security issue, Trump agreed, according to the indictment. Yeah, you're right. It's too late for us, Trump said during a meeting on January 3rd of 2021. We're going to give that one to the next guy. All the while, he repeatedly tweeted and encouraged his supporters to come to Washington on January 6th. The indictment includes new details from former Vice President Mike Pence, who had fought efforts to answer questions about his role in presiding over the congressional certification. Prosecutors cite Pence's contemporaneous notes about his interactions with Trump as the former president tried to convince him to delay or reject the legitimate election results on January 6th. The indictment lists several conversations between Trump and Pence in those weeks, including some that were previously unknown. On December 25th, 2020, Pence called Trump to wish him a Merry Christmas, prosecutors said, but Trump quickly turned the conversation to January 6th and his request that the vice president reject electoral votes that day. The vice president pushed back, telling Trump he didn't have the authority. In another of the calls on January 1st, Trump told Pence, you're too honest, according to the indictment. Wow, I'll repeat that, folks. (laughs) Trump told Pence, you're too honest, according to the indictment. The indictment says that Trump redoubled his efforts, even in the late night hours after his supporters attacked the Capitol. It lays out several attempts by Trump through his aides and co-conspirators to contact multiple senators and at least one House member just before the two chambers reconvened to finally certify Biden's win. At 7.01 p.m. that night, the indictment says, as Trump's allies were making calls, White House counsel Pat Cipollone called Trump to ask him to withdraw any objections and allow the certification. Trump refused, the indictment says. As violence ensued, the defendant and co-conspirators exploited the disruption by redoubling efforts to levy claims of election fraud and convince members of Congress to further delay the certification based on those claims, the indictment says. Early on, Trump's team orchestrated a scheme to enlist officials in seven states that he had lost, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, New Mexico, and Wisconsin, have them submit alternate election certificates saying he had actually won when Congress met to certify the vote on January 6th. The conspirators told most of the local officials that the certificates they were signing saying Trump won the election in their states would only be used if the court cases being waged over the election results showed that outcome. But prosecutors allege that's not true. What started as a legal strategy quickly evolved into a corrupt plan to stop Biden's count on January 6th, the indictment said. Told by a colleague what was going on, Trump's deputy campaign manager called it a crazy play. They refused to put their names on a statement about it because none of them could stand by it. The co-conspirators. The indictment alleges Trump enlisted six people to help him try to overturn the 2020 election, The six people aren't explicitly named, but the indictment includes details that make it possible to identify most of them. As Co-Conspirator 1, Co-Conspirator 2, lawyers Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman are quoted from their remarks at the Stop the Steal rally prior to the riot, urging Pence to throw out the votes of valid electors. A third lawyer, Sidney Powell named as Co-Conspirator 3, filed a lawsuit in Georgia that amplified false or unsupported claims of election fraud. The indictment quotes Trump as privately conceding that Powell's claims sounded crazy. Jeffrey Clark, a Justice Department official who championed Trump's false claims of election fraud, is described as co-conspirator four. Co-conspirator five is lawyer Kenneth Chessebrough, who the indictment says assisted in devising and attempting to implement a plan to submit fraudulent slates of president electors to obstruct the certification proceeding. Co-Conspirator Six is an unknown political consultant who also assisted with a fake elector's plan. There are no known charges against those listed co-conspirators. Giuliani aide Ted Goodman said in a statement that every fact the former New York City mayor had establishes the good-faith basis President Donald Trump had for the actions he took during the two-month period charged in the indictment. Eastman lawyer Harry Sil- Harvey Silvergate said his client denied any wrongdoing. Much of the evidence in the indictment, including repeated efforts by White House advisors to tell Trump that he lost the election, was first laid out last year by the Democrat-led House January 6th committee. In its final report, which was issued in December, the committee said it was making several so-called criminal referrals for Trump to the Justice Department, including obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the United States. A criminal referral from Congress isn't binding, but it is a formal notification from Congress to the Justice Department that lawmakers believe they've found criminal activity. The panel's final report asserted that Trump criminally engaged in a multi-part conspiracy, quote-unquote, to overturn the results and failed to act to stop his supporters from attacking the Capitol. The sheer number of investigations, criminal cases, and lawsuits brought against Trump are unprecedented for a former president. The same could be said for the tens of millions of dollars in legal fees that was paid out to attorneys representing him and his allies, straining the finances of his campaign. An Associated Press analysis of recent fundraising disclosures show Trump's political committees have paid out at least $59.2 million to more than 100 lawyers and law firms just since January of 2021. The threat posed by the colossal drain of resources has led Trump's allies to establish a new legal defense fund, the Patriot Legal Defense Fund. Moving inside the paper to the Nation and World section, the headline reads, DeSantis Asks Harris to Debate History. Vice President Says Slavery Teaching Gaslights the Public on the Issue. This is written by Sung Min Kim, Will Weisert, and Steve Peoples of the Associated Press in Washington. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, facing heavy criticism for defending anti-woke teaching in Florida, this week teed up an unusual proposal to the nation's first black vice president. Come debate the merits of the state's new curriculum on African American history. Less than 24 hours later, Kamala Harris was in an African Methodist Episcopal church in Orlando, firing back. "'I'm here in Florida,' Harris told a cheering audience at a convention of black women missionaries on Tuesday, "'and I will tell you there is no roundtable, no lecture, no invitation we will accept to debate an undeniable fact. There were no redeeming qualities of slavery.'" Harris's trip to Orlando was her second to Florida in just over a week after the state cleared new school guidelines that, in part, require teachers to instruct middle school students that enslaved people developed skills which, in some instances, could be applied for their personal benefit." Quote unquote. It's language that DeSantis defends against strong pushback from Democrats and leading black Republicans on Capitol Hill. Two days after the new guidelines were formally approved, Harris and her aides quickly organized a trip to the state's largest city of Jacksonville and denounced extremists, whom she argued were forcing propaganda on Florida schoolchildren. The vice president also flew to Iowa last week and met with abortion rights advocates on his top GOP presidential candidates gathered in Des Moines to address an influential state Republican Party dinner. That came on the heels of a new Iowa law that bars most abortions about uh, most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, which is now on hold, blocked by a state judge. Harris's moves to seize the political offensive are a departure from years past when she found herself under repeated Republican attacks after making scant progress on tackling the migration challenges at the U.S.-Mexico border. Harris was also the point person on the administration's efforts to bolster voting rights, which failed to gain traction on Capitol Hill. Her newfound aggressive posture is a natural one, Harris' allies say, considering her background as a prosecutor who thrives on zeroing in on an opponent and then hammering their faults. The vice president has long been an effective messenger when Americans' fundamental rights are at stake, said Rohino Kosuglu, Harris's former chief of staff. This recent attack on education, which most Americans would consider extremist, is no different. Nikki Freed, chairwoman of the Florida Democratic Party, said of DeSantis, he took the bait. The fact that he doubled down and brought another week of attention to a losing issue for him gives opportunity for the vice president to reinforce the message from the White House and to reinforce what Americans understand slavery to have been, Freed said. At issue are Florida's revised curriculum standards, particularly the mandate on teaching middle school students about the personal benefits, quote unquote, of slavery. On Tuesday, Harris called it an attempt to gaslight us in an attempt to divide and distract our nation with unnecessary debates. She said the invite from DeSantis was an effort to legitimize that debate. DeSantis has said his critics are intentionally misinterpreting the language and notes that among the people who worked on the new standards is William B. Allen, a black professor emeritus at Michigan State University who has defended the wording about slavery. Still, most of the black Republicans in Congress have come out against Florida's new black history curriculum, including South Carolina Senator Tim Scott who's one of DeSantis' rivals for the GOP presidential nomination, and Representative Byron Donalds, a Republican from Florida, a former ally of the governor who's endorsed former President Donald Trump. Rather than backing down, the DeSantis campaign has gone on the attack against critics, including Donalds, whose conservative credentials they question. In his letter challenging Harris for a debate on the curriculum, DeSantis accused the vice president of trying to score cheap political points, and said Florida was unique in requiring this level of learning about such an important subject. Kamala Harris got on a jet at taxpayer expense and flew to Florida to lie about the African American history standards, DeSantis told Fox's Brett Baer on Monday. You can't bend the knee to the left's lies. When the left lies and creates those phony narratives, you've got to push back. They've been doing this to Republicans for years and years. After Harris' response in Orlando on Tuesday, Never Back Down, which is the super PAC supporting DeSantis, tweeted, Kamala Harris announces she's too afraid to meet with Ron DeSantis and the African-American history scholars who created the four-curriculum standard that she is lying about. DeSantis and other Republicans are eager to make the 2024 presidential race about Harris, believing she can be a liability for President Joe Biden. But Democrats say they'll continue to bolster her role, which will be particularly visible this week. Her schedule includes a trip to the swing state of Wisconsin, as well as remarks on the economy after new job figures are released this Friday, or tomorrow. We'll finish our reading with some sports. Breaking Down the Cape Cod Baseball League Postseason Picture by Andre Sims. The CCBL's centennial season is nearing its closing stages. Calendars flip to August, and the postseason kicks off Friday. While all eight postseason tickets have been punched for a few days now, they're still seeding up for grabs as the season approaches its final day. Here's how the playoff picture looks right now. The Harwich Mariners in the East and Brewster Whitecaps in the East are locked into the third and fourth seeds, and they'll be on the road to begin their postseason campaigns who they'll face, will come down to the last outs of the regular season. With Tuesday's win over the Yarmouth-Dennis Red Sox, the Orleans Firebirds have now won four straight and catapulted themselves into first place in the East Division, dethroning the Red Sox, who've held first place since late June. Even with that win, first place in the East will come down to Game 44. One point separates the two teams going into the final day of the regular season, thanks to YD's one tie this season on wednesday the red sox travel off cape to take on the wareham gateman and the firebirds will host the east division foe chatham at eldridge park in the west division the ketuit kettleers have clinched the top spot and will also be awarded the twenty twenty three President's Cup trophy is the team with the highest regular season point total. The Kettleers were hardly threatened on their perch this season. They began the season scorching hot at 7-2 and two in their first nine games, and they've held on to first place ever since. Hyannis, the second seed in the West, gave Ketuit the only scare they had this year when they narrowed the gap to three points. Ultimately, the Kettleers pulled away and will take on the Bourne Braves in the first round of the playoffs. The Kettleers and the Braves will lock horns in the number one versus number four matchup. And that series will feature some of the premier individual talents in the league this season, both on the mound and at the plate. Cole Mathis and Cameron Hill have been studs for the Kettleers, and Derek Bender has been a force for the Bourne offense since his arrival. And with that, we have come to the end of our reading of today's Cape Cod Times, dated Thursday, August 3rd of 2023. This is your reader, Eric, saying be well, be safe, look after each other, remember our veterans. Bye for now.